I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And for our passage tonight, we'll read verses 5 through 9. So would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Before I read, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will illumine our hearts and our minds to hear what he has to say to us. Living God, by your Spirit, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So feed us now and remove every distraction that we may focus wholly on you. Speak now by me, your servant, to us all, your servants. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. As you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The comforting words and the challenging words. Please be seated. So when I sat down with Chris to discuss our spring preaching schedule, he gave me this date to preach, and I was pretty excited. Until I saw the text. Then I spoke with Chris Miller and he said, oh, you're going to be preaching that text. I'm going to be out of town. Will you come and preach it at Trinity Grace, which I did this morning? So I had to rack my brain and say, what did I do to offend these guys? (laughs) That they're giving this text to me. As I thought about it more, though, I realized by this point of our study of Ephesians, we would have gone through several difficult passages in a row. In chapter 5, addressing sexual immorality, living wisely in evil days and not being drunk with wine, wives submitting to their husbands and husbands self-sacrificially loving their wives, children obeying parents. Maybe, I thought, it's just too many difficult passages in a row, they just need a break. But it wasn't until I began my study that I realized the real reason for their request. As we'll see, one of the main applications of this passage for us is how we do our jobs day to day. And as we all know, a pastor's only task is to come up with a 35-minute talk each week. So what they actually needed was someone with a real job to flesh out this passage for us. (laughs) Kidding aside, and I said that at Trinity Grace too. Kidding aside, we are all blessed to be served by a minister who takes seriously his calling to serve Christ's sheep faithfully and tirelessly. And he's worthy of double honor. But this passage is a difficult one. At least it was uncomfortable for me. So it's with fear and trembling that I stand here tonight. Because we're privileged to live in the time and the place that we do. Where slavery has been removed as a cultural institution. 
What was commonplace for so many societies throughout history is horrifying to us, in large part because the light of the gospel has shone throughout the world, and faithful Christian men and women have diligently worked to see the implication of God's truth brought to bear in their own communities. There are many who would use this and similar passages and their sad abuse in church history as an excuse to doubt or even blatantly reject God and his word. This doesn't have to be the case. And for us, for God's people, it cannot be the case. We believe that God's word is true, it's living and active, it's given for our good and for God's glory. So even passages like this are relevant and important for us. Because we are servants of the living God. And he's given us instruction on how to live as his servants, as well as a foundation of why and how we do so. So, let's look together at what God has to say to us. As we do, you've got an outline to follow. As we'll look at servants of God's word, servants and lords, servants of the Lord, and our Lord, the servant. And I'll warn you from the beginning... I'm going to break a cardinal rule of homiletics. We're not going to begin directly in the text. But we're going to take a few minutes more broadly considering our approach to the Bible and applying that approach to this text. But I think it's important that we do this because there are certain times where we need to take extra care to be sure that we've understood exactly what the Bible is saying and its relevance to us. Have you ever come across something in Scripture that you just wished wasn't there? I mean, wouldn't it just be so much easier if Paul had said, Slaves, run away. Slave owners, repent and set your slaves free. But we are not free to change or to ignore God's words. He has a reason for speaking them. I encourage you to take some time, hopefully this week even, to look at chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is about Scripture and its authority. And it reminds us that the authority of the Bible rests on the authority of God himself. These are God's words. Therefore, they are authoritative because God is authoritative. We can't change these words. They're God's words, not ours. He is Lord and creator of all. And he alone has the authority over how he wants to speak to us. We also can't change them because they're true. God speaks what is good. And what is true, because he is truth himself. And if we deny his words, we are denying him. Every scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So denial or avoidance is not an option. What then should our response be when we come across hard sayings in scripture? Chapter 1 of the Confession is so helpful for us again. It calls us to do use of ordinary means. And it urges us to use Scripture to interpret Scripture as we seek to understand God's message to us. We are to be students of God's Word because we're servants of God's Word. We are called to diligently search Scriptures because they are God's way of communicating with us. We are to make use of ordinary means so that we fully understand what God has said to us. And we consider the whole of Scripture so that we grasp the totality of God's message. I think there are at least four consequences of approaching the Bible in this way. First, it means we receive it joyfully. 
God gives us his word as a gracious gift. And we should be eager and thankful for that gift. Because it's God's word, it is relevant, and it's good for us by its very nature. We don't need to seek artificial ways to try to make it seem relevant. Second, it means that we need to work hard to rightly understand it. We shouldn't be content with a mere surface-level reading of Scripture. We compare Scripture with Scripture to ensure that we're not letting any cultural or traditional factors cloud its meaning to us. So imagine you and I were having a conversation, and I just kept interrupting you or finishing your sentences with non sequiturs or correcting you or assuming I already know what you meant without actually listening. That would strain our relationship. I wouldn't really get to know you because I'm assuming I already know what you want to say to me. I'm not listening. The same is true with God's word. We shouldn't just assume we know what it means. But we should work hard to make sure we've correctly interpreted the scripture. Third, this means once we have understood it, we believe it and we obey it. We don't mansplain what God's word says. Well, actually, or what I think he meant to say was... No, we don't hesitate, we don't rationalize, and we don't self-justify. We respond in faith and submission to the edicts of our great and good king. Fourth, and this is so important, this means when we realize we have misunderstood it, we correct our false understanding and we repent immediately. When we see false teaching, we need to correct it for the protection of others and for the clarity of the gospel. So, for our text tonight, let me be perfectly clear. At different points in history, Christians have attempted to use Scripture to defend the deplorable practice of kidnapping another image bearer of God, forcing them into a lifetime of hereditary servitude, and denying them the dignity of human relationships and life and full equality in public and religious spheres. The Christians who defended this practice were abusing Scripture. They were wrong in their interpretation of Scripture. They were following cultural considerations or traditions to distort their reading of Scripture. And on this point, they were disobedient to their heavenly master. And we deny their wrong interpretation of God's word. This doesn't mean we disparage their character or we throw away everything they say on other topics. We don't consider them reprobates. We have no need to defend their wrongful use of Scripture on this point. Paul is not endorsing chattel slavery as a good practice for Christians to go out and seek to engage in. So, taking this approach of being servants of God's word, let's walk through the text in two different ways. First, let's consider how the Ephesian church would have heard Paul's words when they first received it. And I don't want to sugarcoat the reality of the situation. Paul has a little bit of wordplay going on here. The word translated master is kurios. It's the same word lord. When it's applied to Jesus, it carries with it not only a sense of freedom, but of absolute sovereignty. And the word translated bondservant or slave is doulos. The very word in the ancient world would have been spoken with contempt. It described those who were bound, who had no liberty or legal status of their own. The slavery in view here is not like Old Testament slavery under, under the Mosaic law. Under that law, God allowed for a framework of indentured servitude where the servant was a participant in society and had rights and protections. 
For Israel, kidnapping was a capital offense. And every seven years, Hebrew slaves would be set free if they so desired. Under Roman rule, on the other hand, this institution was oppressive. There were an estimated 60 million slaves across the Roman Empire at the time that Paul is writing. These people had no liberty. They often lived in inhumane and deplorable conditions, often considered to be subhuman. But Paul's purpose is not to reform the Roman Empire, which in a few hundred years is going to fall apart anyway. His goal is to teach the Ephesians how to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, which will outlast every kingdom of man. But his words are culturally revolutionary in their own right. First, he addresses slaves directly. Paul assumes they have the full dignity of human persons. This is similar to how we saw him address women and children in the earlier passages. Beginning back in chapter 5, verse 22, the apostle is outlining what it looks like to live the spirit-filled life at home. In fact, we see a pattern repeated here that we saw in those other pairs. Paul's using a familiar framework in Greco-Roman culture, a household ethics code. The Ephesians would have been familiar with the work of many who took it upon themselves to lay out the responsibilities of different classes of members of a household. But their culture would have seen women, children, and slaves as inherently less valuable than adult free men. And yet, in each of these sets of directions, Paul speaks directly to the culturally lesser group before then turning and speaking to the culturally more important group. Biblical Christianity has always been countercultural in its regard for all people as image bearers of God. And remember where this instruction is taking place. These are directions for within the life of the church. Look back at chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One body, one Father over all, through all, in all. Even in giving slaves directions for carrying out their vocation, Paul assumes that they have full and equal status in the church. Just as there is no Jew or Greek, there is no male or female in the Lord, there is no slave or free. Slaves have the same father and the same inheritance as anyone else in the church. They are brothers and sisters of the other members, and so they must be loved and honored In the life of the church. Even further, Paul's direction assumes they're responsible for their own attitude and heart. In verse 8, Paul states the blessing of God doesn't distinguish between slave and free. God rewards obedience, even the obedience of slaves. Every member of Christ's body has the dignity of a calling in the church. Paul's also radically countercultural in his address to slave owners. His command to the masters is shorter, but it's no less revolutionary. They can't treat slaves merely as property. They have obligations to them. And I don't think we can fully appreciate how extreme and bizarre that idea may have seemed to the church at Ephesus. After all, you don't owe your car anything. 
And no one pleads with you to treat your furniture the same way it treats you. While Roman law made owners absolutely sovereign over what happened to their slaves, Paul sets a limit to their role as master. They're the earthly masters, literally according to the flesh. Masters may have some right over what a slave can or can't do, but they have no right over the mind or over the soul. And Paul can say this because even slave owners have a master. The Lord, who is the only true master, both over them and their slaves. A parallel passage in Colossians 4 says it this way. Treat your slaves fairly and justly or with equity. Paul is requiring Christian masters to acknowledge and grant equal rights for their slaves. And isn't that just like God? He's always raising up the lowly and humbling the mighty. We are all equal before him in our sin. We are all equal before him at the cross and at his table. That very truth underlies the reality that slavery is incompatible with the fact that all men, women, and children bear the image of God. And it would lead to the abolition of slavery in those places where the gospel has spread. There's one last point I want us to see that I think proves that Paul's not giving slavery his stamp of approval. When he addresses husbands and wives, what's the ground that he gives for his direction? He goes all the way back to Genesis, and he roots the existence of marriage in God's original design as expressed in the pages of Scripture. Marriage is an institution founded by God in his perfect creation, intended to remain throughout human history. Submission on the parts of wives, self-sacrificial love on the part of husbands is rooted both in nature and the commands of God. Then when Paul speaks to children and parents, what foundation does he lay? He goes to the Ten Commandments. He shows how the moral law of God guides our family relationships. Again, both nature and God's word are the grounds for those responsibilities within this relationship. But when it comes to slaves and masters, there's no reference to the natural order. Nor does Paul reference scripture, not even the slavery laws of Israel. The slave-master relationship is not natural, but it's cultural and circumstantial. Marriage and family will continue till the return of Christ, because they're part of God's natural design from the beginning. But slavery was a temporary sinful arrangement that by God's grace will fade away as Christ builds his church. Paul can give this call because this world is not ultimate. And in the coming kingdom of Christ, every chain will be broken. The Christian's hope is not in perfect marriages, praise God. Not in perfect children, praise God. Not in a perfectly ordered society, but it is in a perfect Savior who is bringing a perfect kingdom where we will live forever. So I hope you see, even a difficult passage like this doesn't have to scare you away from trusting God and his word. You can have confidence in the truth and the goodness of the Bible. As we think of what it means to be servants of God's word, I think it's worth pausing to reflect on a few questions. Are there portions of scripture that you need to stop denying? Do you have cultural or traditional baggage that's preventing you from understanding the Bible? 
Do you need to commit yourself more to the due use of ordinary means so you can understand God's word more clearly? What calls in scripture do you need to submit to and obey? Or is there a false understanding in yourself or those around you that you need to correct? As we submit ourselves as servants of God's word, may he use it to work in us. So now let's turn our attention to the text again and see what it may mean for our lives today, particularly particularly in regard to our vocation. So on the outline, you'll see the heading servants and lords. And as we look at the passage now, I'll freely admit the relationship of slaves and masters and the relationship of employees and employers are two drastically different things, no matter what it might feel like. But I am convinced that there are principles of living the spirit-filled life in this passage that guide us in that employer-employee realm. Because while we no longer have the institution of slavery, we still have workplaces that include what the shorter catechism calls superiors and inferiors in questions on the fifth commandment. So, are you an employee? This applies to your job. Are you a student? This is your call in your schoolwork. And for those of you who are retired, you're not off the hook. You may still have various arenas where you're under authority, and you do still have the call from Paul in chapter 5 to make the best use of your time. And may I say, we in the church need you. I need you. We need to hear your wisdom on navigating the difficulties of work. We need to hear your failures so that we can learn without having to repeat the same mistakes. We need to hear your victories in accomplishing the task of balancing work, family, church responsibilities, and the countless other demands that we have on our time. So as you listen, please consider the time you spent in your career, the lessons you learned, and how you can use that experience to help spur the rest of us on to good deeds. In Christ's church, we all need each other. At any rate, whatever calling you have that requires you to submit to an authority, the apostle is addressing that for you in these verses. And what is the call? Well, first, it's to obey. This is the same word used in verse 1 for children, to listen and obey. But the relationship here is obviously different. The authority is material. It's limited in scope. We are to obey our earthly masters in the realm where they have authority. Our boss or our teacher is not our pastor, not our spouse, not our parent. They don't tell us what to do at our homes, at worship, or in our recreation. And this obedience does not include participating willingly in any sin. You're not free to lie, cheat, or steal because your company will profit. They are your earthly authority. But they have no right to your soul. And think of this. Many of these slaves may belong to households where their masters served pagan deities. Paul's not encouraging them to go and to participate in idol worship with their masters. In the same way, you and I are not bound to the gods of P&L or the brand or our boss's reputation or our teacher's worldview when any of them conflict with the commands of God. Their authority extends only as far as the tasks they oversee for us. Then Paul describes how this obedience is performed. It's to be done with fear and trembling. 
It's not to say that we need to be afraid of our employers, especially not in the way that slaves would naturally be afraid of their masters. We fear no man, but we do have a proper and holy fear of God. The fear and trembling that Paul has in mind here is rooted in this fear of God. It's a recognition of the seriousness of our calling. It's expressed in an attitude of respect for those that God has placed in authority over us. We should take our work seriously and honor our superiors in the workplace or in the classroom. We are to do this with a sincere heart. And now Paul ups the ante. It's not enough to grin and bear it and fake respect. It must be sincere. The word here is translated in other passages as generous. The generous person doesn't give a bunch of money away and then go and whine about how much money they just gave away. In the same way, Paul says, obey gladly and not begrudgingly. And you may be thinking, now hold on a minute. You don't know my boss. He's an idiot. Or she's incompetent. Or my job is so boring. You don't know how narcissistic my coworkers are. How harshly everybody speaks to each other. Maybe I could suck it up and do what's asked of me, but how am I going to do it sincerely? Paul already has the answer. It's the same answer he has for the woman called to submit to a husband who's not respectable. Obedience is not done to please men. It's offered just as if it were done for Christ. Christians are able to work sincerely because it's not ultimately for a paycheck, for our employer, for the approval of our coworkers, but because our efforts and our vocations bring honor and glory to God. But this doesn't mean we over-spiritualize every facet of our jobs. As Luther said, <clears throat> the cobbler doesn't honor God by making shoes with little crosses on them. He honors God by making excellent shoes for his neighbor to wear. God calls us to excellence. But this is not for our own sakes. God uses our vocations as means to bless others. Luther also called farmers God with a mask on. The Lord feeds his people through the work of the farmer. So we see Jesus' words are true. Even when it comes to work, the sum of the law is to love God wholeheartedly and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul warns us, don't do eye service. Or don't be people pleasers. We don't only do our work when others will notice or for people to tell us how good we are. So kids, do you only do your chores when your parents are watching? Students, do you engage with your study or do you only do it to pass the test or to get approval from your teacher? For all of us, how do we approach the mundane, menial tasks that we know nobody's going to see and nobody's going to care? And what if you have a bad boss or teacher or parent who withholds recognition or worse, takes the glory for themselves? If your motivation for your work is to make someone else happy, you're on a treadmill that will either burn you out or kill you. But maybe you're like me and you're internally motivated. We all like a pat on the back, but you don't think of yourself as a people pleaser. What really matters is that I meet my own standards. Remember, like I was reminded this week, that you are a people too. 
If your standard for yourself is ultimate, you are in no less bondage than the person that does everything to please someone else. Our ultimate measure of our faithfulness and our vocations is not the approval of others and not the approval of ourselves, but of God. One commentary I read put it this way. The conviction of the Christian workman is that every single piece of work he produces must be good enough to show to God. And the Lord is gracious even in motivating us toward obedience. You may have heard the statement, a job well done is its own reward. That's a nice sentiment, but Paul begs to differ in verse 8. God himself will give rewards to those who work wholeheartedly for his glory. Sometimes we are tempted to be more spiritual than God. He knows our frailty. He promises good things in order to spur us on to good works. These rewards aren't material or temporal, but they're spiritual. They're held for us in eternity. For those of you in positions of authority in the workplace or school, verse 9 is for you. You are to be concerned with the well-being of your employees or your students or your interns. You are not to use fear as a motivator. You are not to wring every last drop out of your employees for the sake of the bottom line. Remember, God is in authority over you, and treat those in your charge as you would want the Lord to treat you. So at this point, I want to make two observations, and then ask some specific questions for application. First, just as with the husband-wife and the children-parents commands, we see that we can actually help others fulfill their vocation by our obedience. Husbands, How much easier would it be for your wife to submit to you if she constantly saw you die to yourself in love for her? Kids, how much easier is it for your parents to be patient when you listen and obey the first time? In the same way, if employees do their work with seriousness and respect, their employer doesn't feel like they have to resort to threats to motivate them. If an employer is apt to reward diligence, it motivates the employee to work hard even when no one is looking. Our obedience and our calling serves one another in making it easier for others to obey theirs. Second, we should learn that every vocation has dignity. Even the work of slaves can be honorable and worthwhile in God's eyes when it's done for his glory. Christians are not called to seek a radical vocation, but we are called to radical obedience in ordinary, everyday tasks. Don't despise the calling you have, but know that God sees, and he will reward faithfulness wherever he has you. For those of you in junior high, high school, college, parents with kids that age, as you plan for the future, would you consider that prestige, Money and power are not ultimate as you consider a career path. Success is defined differently for Christians. And I think this is especially important for us to remember in an economic and work environment that is is as results-driven as Northwest Arkansas can be. For the Christian, achievement is viewed in light of eternity, not only in progress reports or year-end scorecards. Nor is there anything inherently more spiritual about the ordained ministry or working for a Christian organization. 
There are not levels of vocation with some that are more honoring to God than others. If you're going to be a teacher, teach for the glory of God. If you're going to be a lawyer, practice law for the glory of God. If you're going to be an auto mechanic, fix cars to the glory of God. If you're, going to, if you're going into the military, if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you're working retail, owning your own business, or spending 25 years in middle management, whatever it is you do, do it for the glory of God. Because as long as your job is not sinful, you can honor him equally by pursuing excellence wholeheartedly. So where are we falling short? Do you need to repent of a poor attitude and begin approaching your job with a sincere heart? Do you need to stop disparaging your boss to your coworkers or your family or friends? Do you need to stop seeking the approval of others and work to honor God? Do you need do you need to treat your employees with more dignity and respect? Do you need to stop taking credit for someone else's work? Do you need to give somebody a raise? Paul's calling is lofty, and we can only truly fulfill our vocations when we remember that we are servants of the Lord. And really, this call to radical obedience in ordinary vocations makes no sense unless we recognize our true master. I think we can see this in a positive and in a negative way. First with the positive side. If we learned anything from our study of Ecclesiastes is that all of our work done under the sun is in vain. We are foolish to to seek ultimate fulfillment in our job because the curse of the fall included futility in our work. So when you have a job that feels meaningless or your boss is a jerk or you just can't seem to get things right, the only way you can carry on is by remembering who it is that you're really working for. Sinclair Ferguson put it brilliantly. You don't have to live in discouragement when you have conflict with your boss Because you can go over his head straight to your true master. You have the right to an audience with the king of the universe as his beloved child. And to bring him your frustration. And he will listen. Because he cares about you. What could the opinion of some mere man possibly matter in light of that? What's more, your work has meaning because God is intimately interested in it and he's orchestrating his plan and purpose by involving even the work that you do day in and day out. And what a great testimony it is that our work may seem futile, we may, we may be underappreciated, but our God is worth our obedience even when our jobs seem worthless. And while you cannot do this in your own power, He has given you his spirit to lead and empower you in obedience. On the negative side, the reason this is difficult, of course, is because of our own pride. We think we deserve so much better. And it may very well be the case that at times we do. But how we respond reveals the truth about what we really think about our Lord. When we complain about the job that we voluntarily chose to engage in, we are first disrespecting our brothers and sisters around the world and throughout history that didn't have to imagine what Paul meant about slaves and masters because they lived it every day. Second, we are saying that our God is not worth our best efforts and his commands are not worthy of our attention 
and obedience. As an employer, when you mistreat your employees, you are in effect saying, I have more of a right than God to the efforts of these people. And this places you on very dangerous ground. Because before the great master, you and your employees are on the same level. He has every right to tell us all how we should behave in the workplace. Because he is Lord of all, and no one is so great as to earn his favor. So you may be thinking, okay, I get it. I need to do my best and not complain. I need to not take advantage of other people. Do I have to consider myself a slave? Really? And the answer is yes. Romans 6 tells us we used to be slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to God for righteousness. Even before God, that seems so degrading and demeaning. May I be so bold as to say to me and to you, you and I do not have more dignity than the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think that sacrificial service to others is beneath us, that's exactly what we're saying. Servant is fine for Jesus, but I'm better than that. And this will serve as our conclusion. And if you've tuned out, tune back in, because this is the most important thing. Because what do we learn from Philippians 2? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a doulos, a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So do you see how Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 describes Jesus? The Son of God himself became a slave for our sake, He was subject to the law of God and obeyed perfectly with fear and trembling, while never compromising God's law for man's law. He did so with a sincere heart at all times. If there is anyone in the history of the world who didn't care about performing eye service or being a people pleaser, it was Jesus of Nazareth. He did God's will, even when it cost him his life. And he carried out his calling of service. The Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, as obedience to his Father. And for his good work, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Master, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord of lords and their servants, and he shows no partiality. And he did this not only to be an example for us, but in our place to cover our failures. Because we fail continually in what he calls us, he was the perfect servant, and he is the perfect Lord. We no longer have to fear man because we belong to a good Lord. We no longer need the approval that comes from pleasing others because God approves of us and accepts us and is pleased with us because of the work of the Lord Jesus. We no longer have to strive after earthly rewards because we have every spiritual blessing and a heavenly inheritance waiting for us. We have no need to threaten 
Because the threat of hell has been removed for us by Jesus. So come to him. Trust in his work. Rest in Jesus, the humble servant who served perfectly on your behalf. And then go. Freely serve your neighbor in the name and for the honor of our gracious Lord. Will you pray with me?